Welcome to Committing Faith in Public, a podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith, working for a more just, kind, and hospitable society. Through the stories our guests tell, we want to encourage you to commit your faith in public, too. I'm Gary Palouse-Overdand, Executive Director of the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Welcome to Committing Faith in Public, and I'm very pleased to be on today with, I won't say an old friend of mine, but I just did, <laughs> but somebody I've known now for a fairly long time, well over 20 years, Carissa Hunter-Crump, the Reverend Dr. Carissa Hunter-Crump. She and I first met when she was pastoring a small church in Denver, and I think I did a retreat up at the retreat house and Evergreen, Colorado, and Conifer, Colorado. And then Carissa, who's a graduate of Iliff School of Theology, did a Doctor of Ministry degree at Phillips Theological Seminary. Carissa is, in my estimate, one of the preachers I like listening to on a, on a regular basis. I'm always impressed with the way you use words. And her family, she's not the only preacher in her family, her family is known as being kind of Anglo-Catholic disciples. And uh, Carissa has a strong poetic sense, she adds to that, also a a strong sense of congregations need to be involved in a community and for social justice. So first, Welcome, Carissa. It's so good to see you. For even though on the podcast you won't be able to see us, but we see each other as we're as we're doing this. And uh, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much, Gary. I'm so glad to be here. What I wanted to talk to Carissa about is a religious congregation's experience during the pandemic and sort of what they've learned from it. And as we're moving out of lockdowns and face masking and other sorts of things now, and back to in-person, sort of what may be changed along the way. So first, for the sake of the folks listening, tell us a little about uh, the church you serve, Karen Christian Church in near Boulder, Colorado, in Lafayette, Colorado, and its journey from its former home to where it is now. Well, it's a great story because we are one of those very old historic churches, almost 150 years old. We were actually founded before Colorado became a state and uh, moved through lots of transitions within the Boulder community, but eventually built a building there in the 1960s that was very forward thinking, very modern, very beautiful, facing the flat irons. Uh, you know, just sort of an amazing space. And they finally, as so many churches did at that in that era, had to let that building go. Mm. And it became unmanageable with a smaller congregation. And mm-hmm. so so we needed to move. They actually called me to ministry the month that they were moving. So they had already started mm. selling the building. They had already purchased a new building, which happened to be a Orthodox building uh, built in about the 1980s, about 10 miles east in Lafayette, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And so they had to leave that building. They had to leave their community. They had to leave all of the ministries that they had worked so hard to establish there. And Mm -hmm. uh, we made that uh, 10-mile journey literally walked from the old building to the new building, packed 
During worship, we packed all of our sacred objects into backpacks, and we literally carried them the 10 miles um, from one location to the next. And then when we got to the new building, we drank milk and honey on on the front lawn to celebrate uh, reaching our new home. But it was a, just a huge transition to leave that place and basically become a new church start in a new, right. in a new community. Right. And what were the missional reasons for choosing the place you did? So some of the reasons that we chose it were purely practical. We found a building we okay. could afford. It, it, it okay. was beautiful. That, that's it no was, small and thing. That's no small <laughs> thing. But the other reality is there was no progressive church voice at that point in that eastern part of Boulder County. So there was a brand new opportunity to, to be that progressive voice in a new community. And we were very excited about that. The other piece of it is that it was a growing community. Um, and so there were opportunities for, for growth in the community. And then the other thing is we really were a, a church made up of people that came from all different places, precisely mm-hmm. because we had a progressive voice and were involved in social justice. And so people were traveling from Denver and from from Longmont, north of us. And so so the, the Lafayette position gave us much more opportunities for our community to be centrally located for mm-hmm. all the folks that were coming in. And that's, it's surprising to hear that there weren't other, at that time, established progressive church voices in the area because when i hear boulder <laughs> i initially you know i would think university of colorado and and one of the most liberal and if not a liberal not only liberal but kind of secular yes. kinds of environments yeah. so it was just surprising that there wasn't a just a bunch of progressive ministries around right and there are so many more now i mean it, it, as boulder has become it's sort of landlocked. Boulder, you just can't, you can't do anything in Boulder anymore. And so people are moving out into these communities outside. And so that, that sort of progressive bubble that, that exists there in Boulder, and it is definitely a bubble Mm -hmm. that has expanded out into those areas now, but really we were on the front end of it. So has the church benefited from that expanded bubble? Definitely. I, I would say definitely. And as with any church, we've had highs and lows, but we have we have seen tremendous growth in our membership. We have been able to to reach out to communities that had nowhere really to to go and worship, in mm-hmm. particular the mm-hmm. LGBTQ community in East Boulder. Um, and we've just we've really thrived in that in that new situation. And again, so all those things that were mm-hmm. so hard to leave behind because they had worked so hard to establish them. They were very brave and bold to make that decision. Sounds that way. Yes. Yeah. That's admirable. So your go March, uh, the world changed for those of us used to face to, you know, so much face to face and interpersonal. And I know that I've been to Karen once to preach and I can tell it's a, it's a tight knit community and people really value their face to face in person interaction. Mm-hmm. But a year ago, March, all that changed. In what ways was Karen well prepared in, in any, if, if any, uh, for the, uh, for that kind of change for that, for the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, 
was anybody in any way prepared for the well prepared, right right more or less but i think what we were prepared for was change itself and i think mm. there's a number of, of things to think about on that for one thing we had the, you know the new building we're in now is our fourth building so every time this congregation has seen the situation change for themselves, they've been willing to say, it's time for another another move. It's time for something. Right. Move. The church is not the building. The church is yep. not the building. And I also think that they have really tried to move with the changes in social needs and to really address mm. those as those mm-hmm. things have come up and, and, and they've addressed them. They've addressed homelessness within the Boulder community for years and years and, and hosting, hosting ministries, feeding, feeding folks with a community table in their basement many nights of the week. They have tried to be flexible around worship and change with those needs. We've done major work as a community on the new sanctuary movement and trying to understand what that is. In case people don't know what that is, what is? Tell us what new sanctuary movement is. So, so the sanctuary movement back in the eighties was that that mm-hmm. willingness to house folks that otherwise were going to going to be deported, um, and there was a lot of danger around that. Mm-hmm. There's been a new movement that particularly picked up steam under the Trump administration, but also under right. Obama when when immigration the the rules around it were so broken and folks that. Uh, were just your ordinary families uh, being separated from each other and deported. And so churches would mm-hmm. set themselves up as sanctuary churches to take them in um, and let them live in their property because those pl- spaces were, were off limits for deportation. And so we went through a year-long yeah. process of addressing whether we could become a, a sanctuary church. And it mm-hmm. was pretty controversial mm-hmm. among our membership, mm-hmm. even with how, how progressive mm-hmm and what their views were. So we ended up being a support church. We didn't house anyone, but we've supported um, Ingrid and Colada de la Torre. For four years, she has been in sanctuary. So just making those big decisions, we've had to do that through the years. And I also think our structure lends itself. We, we had, when we restructured after we moved into the new building, we created what we call a visioning team. And the visioning team specifically looks at what's next. So they don't pay any attention to the details or micromanaging. They take the long view of what are we missing? What opportunities are there? What do we need to get better at doing? And so so we have that built into our structure to try and meet an immediate need as it comes up. So I think in all those ways, we were ready, as ready as you could be. And I also think we had done the work on technology. Tell me some about that. When we remodeled our sanctuary, um, so that was one of the first things we did because a, an Orthodox uh, church is is uh, set up very differently, and so right, right. <laughs> so there was a lot that needed to happen to to make the. There was uh, I've never heard of an iconostasis in uh, in a disciples' <laughs> exactly. church, right? <laughs> and, and once they took all their accoutrements out, it was a very plain space. Okay, and so. So when we did that remodel, we incorporated technology into it. And this had been a church that, with all their progressive ideas, were very resistant to any technology. Um, and I think primarily because it reminded them of a megachurch or a more evangelical-style worship, and they wanted nothing to do with it. 
But we incorporated that in. We put two screens in our sanctuary. We tried to do it very aesthetically pleasing and to use them in ways that really did enhance our sacred space space and our sense of what worship was. And so, so we already were incorporating music and images and, and, and those kinds of things into our worship. So that was fairly easy to transfer over to a Zoom format. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. And then we had used Zoom some as a congregation for meetings, but really not much. It was a big, big, steep learning curve for us to all do that. But within two weeks of the start of the pandemic... Uh, so we did two weeks with no worship. I just sent emails out to the congregation each Sunday. Um, but within that two weeks, we had put together our Zoom worship and transferred everything over and trained all of our membership uh, with the help of our elders in how to use Zoom. I held several training sessions. And within two weeks, we had that up and running. So I also think you know, just amazing leadership that knew how, because we'd faced so many decisions together, over the 10 years and the years before that, we were ready to make quick decisions. Besides the learning curve and, and using Zoom for everything, <laughs> were there other learning curves, uh, not, uh, at least one other learning curve that you really felt, yeah, the congregation really leaned into and embraced that one? I think it had to do with, so one of the things that is, like you've already said, being, we are a very close knit, intimate congregation. And how do you put that online? So, right, you can produce something beautiful, but how do you make it intimate? And how do you do that in a way that's safe online? So, we're a very intergenerational church. And so, our worship services involve all of our kids, all of our youth. They do things every Sunday, not just you know, feeding them a children's sermon, but actually having them leave worship, be part of worship. And, and we share our joys and concerns every Sunday and, and have this open time of sharing. Now, how do you put that out in a public space? It's one of the reasons we've never streamed our worship services because they, they really, it's, it's not a performance. It's, it's, a, it's a, a gathering of who we are together. And it changes when we, we know that even from a seminary worship and all here, it's a whole lot of different decisions yeah. when, you know, you have a joys and concerns time that in the more private space of a sanctuary means one thing. Once you put it online, yeah. then you have perhaps a violation of, of all kinds of yes. HIPAA codes and conference yes. and confidences and the like. Yeah. I think that's also another way we were very prepared for the pandemic is that we had a comprehensive safety policy in place that huh. all the decisions about what goes online and what does not, those were those were made. Now uh, we've actually improved those over the year as we've learned more mm -hmm. and more. But we were ready for mm -hmm. those kinds of decisions about putting our children's images. We put no children's images anywhere right. online. And right. So, so, but it, but that learning curve of how to be intimate and still in worship, and it's why we chose Zoom and mm -hmm. not streaming. Uh, and it has been mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. remarkable what we've been able to do mm -hmm. to keep those connections. And all we do is we edit all of that out before it ever goes on to anything online. Mm -hmm. So, um, trying to remember yeah, the that, question that I'm answering. 
Well, it was it was it was about a learning curve that you leaned into as a congregation, really learned something yeah. from. And and I want to underline what you're saying about the safety factor and about some of those really important decisions of streaming versus playing a recording of some sort or leaving as 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 the as the artifact being left behind, being that recording that had where he had an opportunity to edit it mm-hmm. and make sure that this was safe yeah. for everyone. I think that was really, that that's something I want to underline here. Yeah. And the other one that I think of is, and I'm focusing on worship, but I mm-hmm. think the other one is we're a tactile church. We're a, we're a sensory mm-hmm. church. And so mm-hmm. our worship is not uh, just visual and auditory. It is, it's so much more than that. And, and what, what did it look like to create that, um, using Zoom? So we, our very first, we use seasonal teams. So each season they create the theme, they create the space, the sacred space around Mm -hmm. that theme, and they create the liturgy. So every season looks different. And so our summer seasonal team was the first team to do that during pandemic. And they came up with, and and there's probably other churches that have done exactly this idea, but they came up with the idea of of worship bags that we then delivered to every household in our community. And in those worship bags, we so every season since then has done that. They've included candles. We've had rocks for building cairns, paper chains that we've made. We've included implements for doing Lectio Visio. So we've really been able to include the tactile in those. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was a learning curve. It, it was it was sort of like, how on mm-hmm. earth do we do this and mm-hmm. create this? The tactile yeah. part. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Thinking in the level of, of ecclesiology, of what it means to be the church, be church, do church, is something I know that you you give some attention to. And I'd really like to hear, did you learn something about doing or being church that you might not have on a gut level really known previously? What if it's something that I sort of knew on a gut level and I, and then it just sort of confirmed it? <laughs> Oh, okay. That's awesome. That's I'm happy for that revision. Go for it. Because I we've mentioned the buildings and that the church is not the building, Mm -hmm. and we've I mean it really has been phenomenal to to in some ways Zoom has offered us something. We so we talk about trying to be a safe space to be brave. Um, It's not Mm -hmm. our language. Mm -hmm. It's it's language that that Mm -hmm. we just have incorporated but a safe space that we can ask questions, learn together, say things that might be controversial, challenge each other about about our faith or about a social justice issue. Um, so we talk about safe, safe space and brave space a lot. In some ways, Zoom has allowed a little bit more safety, especially mm-hmm. for folks that may be mm. joining us for the first time or be new to mm-hmm. us. And we, and we have had people from other states and countries join us. But you're able to sort of be in the space without coming to the building, right? You don't mm-hmm. have to come mm-hmm. in and walk in mm-hmm. and all of that. You kind of can, and then you can see each other's faces so easily and get to know each other. So I know that it has taken that piece of what we understand church to be and maybe given us an extra way to do that even better as we have hard conversations. And we've had some amazing book studies and pub theology conversations through Zoom. 
uh, that maybe wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So it's, it's sort of expanded that. The other side of the building part is, it's not the building, but it is the building. <laughs> And so in terms of ecclesiology, for me, sacred space continues to be vitally important. And we have missed that this year for all of our work on tactile worship and great imagery on our screens and all of those things. There is nothing like walking into a sacred space and knowing it is a space that is safe and a space we can be brave in and and creating that together. And so it has sort of confirmed that for me. Um, so anytime I've read something like, why do we need our church buildings? I, I go back to that. We have That is the piece that has been the hardest to create in these online spaces. Now, and, and it's not that we haven't done some of it. Um, and we do talk about thin spaces at Cairn a lot. And when people are sitting in their homes and there's distractions and there's pets and there's coffee to be drunk and, you know, whatever it is, it's, it, 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 it's too many distractions. But it's not just about a quiet space because part of the sacred space is the community being there together. I think about our, our sanctuary has a big labyrinth on the floor in the center of the sanctuary. And we often have the pews in the round around the, the labyrinth. And at the beginning of our worship, our children always dance on the labyrinth. Um, and that is how worship opens. They dance on the labyrinth and then they carry candles to the to the cairn and place them there. And and there is nothing like that celebratory gathering of the church that's very hard to feel when you're online. Yeah. Embodied space. Embodied space. Embodied space. Yep. Yep. Cool. So thinking about moving forward, I've read a number of articles and essays and all about church leaders and of all religious congregations, actually, you know, thinking, what do we want to keep that we learned something important about that we weren't doing before on the other side? What is there? Is there some of that kind of learning? Is there some, some of that kind of planning or thought at, at Karen? Absolutely. What do you want to keep? Yeah. We are currently, we have not gone back to in-person worship yet, even though things have changed and are changing rapidly. And our, and one of our reasons is our children and ensuring they can come back and, and be with us. So that intergenerational push to, to be together. But we are also really working on hybrid worship that is not simply streaming. So going back to that issue. So when we go back to in-person worship, we have People worshiping with us from West Virginia, from Washington State, from England, um, from Ohio, you know, all over. And so when we go back, our goal is to be able to have them present the same way they would be present uh, during a Zoom uh, call um, so that they can speak, they can share, they can read scripture, lead worship, and that we can see them as well as them see us. And so that is never going away as as far as I know, at least not in the near future. And so that's a huge change for us. I think we will also continue doing classes online because it means that some of our seniors that can't get out at night are now included in things they, they never could have participated in. Uh, folks that don't drive at night and as well as leadership. We have not always asked our, our older folks or sometimes families with young children 
to to be in certain leadership positions, especially our seasonal groups that plan worship, because it would be so hard for them to get to the church building. Mm-hmm. And that's just no mm-hmm. longer a limitation. So so it, it opens those things out for us so much. So a lot of changing the way that meetings might get done, changing who might be involved in a class. And I've, I, this is something I've read several essays on about what's the difference. We used to think about a congregation as, as, as strictly local. I mean, even even hear hear the phrase that's often used. It was, wasn't a gen, another generation local church. Yes, the local church. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and now the local and and distant polarization, in a way, mm-hmm. has 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 uh, weakened quite yeah. a bit, as you described. In 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 who now may think about Karen as if not their quote church home as one of the places they feel at yes. home. Uh, when they're trying to be in yeah, church. Yeah, and I think it has also meant that there are some folks that worship with us sometimes and worship somewhere else sometimes. So what does right. that even... Right. Karen has already sort of ditched the whole idea of membership. Membership. And so right. what does it mean to be a part of Karen? It, 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 there are multiple ways to be part of Karen. Um, and so it expands our, our community so much further. Uh, and that's really exciting. Yep, it is. It is. And I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, thoughtful church leaders and and religious congregational leaders such as yourself uh, and the folks you work with are going to do as you move forward. Carissa Hunter-Crump, thank you so much for being with me on Committing Faith in Public today and for the kind of public commitment to faith that Karen really embodies. Thank you. I appreciate it, Gary. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary. Copyright Phillips Theological Seminary and Gary Peluso Verdant. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect official positions of Phillips Theological Seminary.